Let's see, am I on? Good morning. Maybe you said it and I just couldn't hear you through the masks. <laughs> Did you say good morning? <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, as Norton said, I'm Emily Schultz. I'm one of the pastors here. But first, I want to point out, have you ever gone to church before and they asked the elders up and it was so many women and like pregnant bellies and a baby? I've never seen that before. Maybe you have, but I have not. We have other elders too, but the women were representing today, so got to love that. Um, cool. Well, if you have not been with us the past couple weeks, we're in the middle of a series And I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I'm going to let someone else tell you. So watch this. Look down there. That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look hard. You see, he lives in you. Oh, man. There's so much good stuff in there. Remember who you are. Remember. You have forgotten who you are, and so forgotten me. This series is all about remembering who we are. And this is what we've said so far. We are crafted by God. We are unique and special, not mass-produced. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are new. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus so that our core identity is no longer sinner, but new creation. Today we're going to look at another aspect of who we are, something else that's true about ourselves that it's easy to forget and that we want to remember. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 16. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book, so what we'll read today happens before most things we read about in the Bible. This is before Paul, before Jesus, before Israel's even a nation. When our elementary kids hear a portion of the Bible taught here on Sundays when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, we show them a timeline so they can see where they're at in the story. And so I wanted to show you guys the timeline for us today. If we skip over Adam and Eve and Noah, we get to the part of the story we're at today. In Genesis 11, we're introduced to Abraham, whose name at the time is Abram. In Genesis 12, God 
promises Abram that he's going to make him into a great nation, which means he'll have a lot of descendants. But there's only one problem. Abraham and his wife, Sarai, don't actually have any kids. And there, there really is one more problem, and that's that they're old, like really old. So naturally, they assume that they couldn't have any kids. But Abram believes God's promise and begins waiting for him to bless them with a child. Abram and Sarai wait and wait and wait for 10 years. Abram is 75 when God first promises that he's going to have a child, and now he's 85. People did live longer back then, but even by those standards, this was really, really old to be having kids. Any child they had would have to be a miracle. Abram was still trusting God to provide, but Sarai began to think, we've been patient, so patient. At some point, this is just foolish. Clearly, this is not going to happen for us. We've got to figure out another way. And that brings us to this. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Or other versions say she treats me with contempt, or she looks down on me, or she thinks she's better than me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Now, I need to give some disclaimers. The text we're reading is very old and describes people from a very different time and culture. And so I get that in this passage we see slavery, polygamy, and God seeming to tell an abused woman to return to her abuser. That's a lot. And we're not going to get into all those messy issues today. I'll just say this. We can see from other portions of Scripture that God does not actually condone slavery or polygamy or abuse but he does work within broken systems and people and situations. Let me add, if you have a difficult time with Christianity or the Bible because of these types of issues and passages, if you've got questions or concerns or you would like to learn more, shoot us an email and Norton would be happy to meet with you and help you better navigate some of these things. For today, if you can bear with me and look past some of these things that we see as so wrong and that are so striking for us to read because it's so different from what's acceptable in our time and our culture, 
I think there's actually something really amazing that we can discover about God and ourselves in this passage. This passage isn't so much about Abram and Sarai as it is about someone else. The passage is primarily about Hagar and God's encounter with her. Hagar was a slave. She was a servant in Abram and Sarai's house. She doesn't get to marry for love. She marries to fulfill just another task or duty given to her by her mistress, Sarai. She gets pregnant, and maybe she starts to think, wow, this is kind of cool. I was able to do something that my mistress couldn't do. Getting pregnant and having children was a huge status symbol in this culture. If you couldn't have kids, there was something wrong with you. You were considered cursed. So Hagar, low-status slave, apparently gets a little cocky, and then Sarai, who's probably feeling insecure, embarrassed, bitter, jealous, and resentful towards Hagar, is cruel to her. We don't know how, but somehow she mistreats her to the point where Hagar is miserable and wants to run away. It's a bad situation and a sad scene all around. Hagar runs away and is in the desert, and it's then that she encounters God, or more specifically, the angel of the Lord, who Hagar recognizes as God. In verse 8, he says to her, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? Now let's pause for a minute. That's pretty amazing. The God of the universe comes to you. He finds you at your lowest moment when you're discouraged and afraid, when you have nothing and no one. He comes to you, and he knows your name. Hagar, he asks, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. He's God. He knows where she's come from. He knows what's happened to her and the situation that she's trying to leave behind. He also knows that she doesn't know where she's going. She only answers half of the question. She doesn't have a plan for where to go or how to even survive. She's alone in the desert, which is a very vulnerable place to be. Maybe God knows that she's in greater danger there than back in Abram's house. In his wisdom, he tells her, go back. I know you think it's awful there, and it is. Sarai has been terrible to you, but trust me, go back, obey her. I'm going to protect you. I'm watching out for you. I won't let her hurt you badly. In fact, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. He tells her that she'll give birth to a son and that she should name him Ishmael, which means God hears because he has heard of her misery. He tells her some things about what Ishmael will be like and what his life will be like, and though those descriptions may not seem very positive to us, Hagar is encouraged by what God says. God tells Hagar all these things, and then she responds by giving God a new name. She says, you are the God who sees me. And as she reflects on this encounter she's had with God, she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. At Hagar's lowest point, when she's hit rock bottom, she has this encounter with God and she learns something about herself that's true about her and that's true about you and me. And it's this, you are seen. You are seen by the one true God. He knows your name. He knows when you're having the best day ever and when you've reached your absolute breaking point. He sees you and he cares. When no one else sees you, God sees you. Now, this wasn't Hagar's only encounter with God. We actually get one more glimpse of Hagar's life if we skip ahead a few chapters to Genesis 21. Here's what it says. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. 
And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Let's pause here for a moment. Abraham and Sarah finally have a son, Isaac. He's the son God had promised them 25 years earlier, and his birth is an absolute miracle. Even though he's not technically Abraham's firstborn son, Everybody knows that this is the son God had promised, so he's going to be treated as if he were the firstborn. He's going to receive all of his father's inheritance, and his father's line is going to continue through him. This kid is special, and everybody knows it. So what are they to do about Hagar and her son Ishmael? Abraham and Sarah had tried to do things their own way instead of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Their plan resulted in Ishmael's birth, but this was clearly not how God had desired to operate. He fulfilled his promise like he said he would by Sarah having a child, even though she was well past her childbearing years, and now Ishmael's life is irrelevant. Hagar and Ishmael have become like a footnote in this story. They were this detour that didn't amount to anything, this blemish on the record of Abraham and Sarah, an embarrassing reminder of how they had tried to take matters into their own hands. There's still this tension between Hagar and Sarah and now between Ishmael and Isaac. And when Ishmael mocks Isaac, Sarah has had enough and she exclaims to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Abraham is greatly distressed and reluctant because after all, Ishmael is his son, but God tells him that it's okay. And so he agrees. He gives Hagar food and water and sends Hagar and Ishmael away. Now let's finish our passage. This is where it gets so sad. Try to picture in your mind this heartbreaking scene. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. 
So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Hagar is in the desert again, this time with Ishmael, and she has no place to go. They're wandering around and they run out of food and water. They're completely alone and she's helpless and desperate. If she thought she was at rock bottom before, she was wrong. This is rock bottom. Because it's not just her who's vulnerable out here in the desert now. Her precious son, who's literally all she has in this world, is hungry and thirsty, and she can't do a thing for him. She sits him down under a bush and then walks away and begins to sob because she cannot bear to stay there and watch him die. It's in that moment that God speaks to her again. The angel of God calls to Hagar from heaven and says, what's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God opens her eyes, and she sees a well of water. It's amazing. The boy is not going to die of thirst after all. God provides for Hagar and Ishmael in the desert. And we don't know where they go from there or much about the rest of their lives, but we know that God continues to provide for them and is with them. To Sarah, Hagar was that slave woman. Get rid of that slave woman. To God, Hagar was Hagar. He calls her by name. He sees her. He has compassion on her. He provides exactly what she needs in the moment when she needs it. And he gives her hope for the future. Twice, Hagar encounters God in the worst of circumstances. When no one in the world seems to care, God cares. When she feels completely alone and completely invisible, God sees her. And what's true about Hagar is true about you as well. You are seen. You are seen. You are seen by God. He knows your name. There are billions and billions of people in this world, and yet God sees you. The story is about Hagar and reminds us of a truth about ourselves that's easy to lose sight of, but can we just stop and acknowledge how good God is? He is the hero of this story. He's the hero of every story. Have you guys ever wondered why certain stories like Hagar's are included in the Bible? We get why Abraham would be in there. He's the father of the Israelite nation, God's chosen people. But if you were writing Abraham's biography, wouldn't you maybe decide to leave the part about Hagar out? Hagar's story is not a good look on Abraham, or Sarah for that matter. The fact that it's even included encourages me in two ways. First, it helps show the trustworthiness of the Bible. Do you guys see that? The stories we read in the Bible may be messy and contain elements that make us uncomfortable, but that's because the authors are not trying to censor or sugarcoat these stories. This is just what happened. This is history. But I don't think that's the only reason for including Hagar's story. The Bible tells lots of stories about lots of people, so it's easy to forget that the overarching story isn't about any of them. It's about God. The primary purpose of the Bible is to teach us who God is, and we can learn a lot about who God is through his interactions with Hagar. That's why it's included. 
I love that Mufasa says, you have forgotten who you are and so forgotten me. Because isn't that the truth and the whole point of this series? This isn't just meant to be self-help or make us feel good about ourselves. When we remember who we are, we remember who God is. For a lot of people, the God they see in the Old Testament gets a bad rap. They see him as the angry God, and maybe you've thought that too. Then Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, and he's nice. We like him. But that's just crap. God is the same. He's always been the same. He will always be the same. From the beginning of the story, from the beginning of our timeline, this is who God is. You are the God who sees me. We are seen because he is gracious. We are seen because he is compassionate and caring. We are seen because he is powerful. He doesn't have to see us, to notice us, to pay attention to us. We are a small speck of dust, a blip in the history of the world, and yet God, in his infinite power and in his infinite love, chooses to notice you. Even you. Even Hagar. Even a slave-turned-single mom who is insignificant to those around her and yet precious in the eyes of God. Life is really hard right now for a lot of us. We're all in different circumstances, but I bet each of us has something in our life or the life of someone close to us who is just going through something really tough. 2020 has knocked most of us around a bit, and it's easy to feel discouraged or overwhelmed. It's easy to give up hope, to doubt God's goodness, to point our finger at God and say, are you kidding me? Do you see what's going on here in my life, in this country, in the world? Don't you see? Don't you care? Hagar's story is a reminder to us that even when life is the worst, or maybe especially when life is the worst, you are seen. She doesn't encounter God when things are going well. It's when she's in the desert, alone, afraid, completely helpless and hopeless that God intervenes. He reminds her that he's with her, that he sees her, that he cares. And I think God wants to remind us of that today too. You are seen. You may feel invisible to everyone else, but you are not invisible to God. He knows your situation. He knows your heart. He knows the weight you're carrying and all you're feeling and experiencing. He might not make things better right away. Tomorrow might be just as hard as today, but you are not alone. God sees you. He knows your name. Let me just add this. We want to see you too. In New Denver, we strive to be a community, a family that sees each other, that knows each other's names, and that cares about each other in good times and bad. As Norton said, one of our core values is presence, and that's primarily about acknowledging that God is present with us and we want to respond to what he's doing in our lives. But it's also about being present with one another. It's been really hard to be present with each other the past few months, and I bet many of you are feeling disconnected from this church family since we haven't gotten to gather together in the ways we're used to or with the ease that we're used to. If this season has been especially rough for you and you're struggling in some way or feeling alone, please re reach out to us. We don't have all the answers and we don't promise any quick fixes, but we want to be there for you. God sees you and he cares, but a big way he communicates his presence and his care is through other people. So I encourage you to take the vulnerable step of admitting if things are hard right now. 
If you have a hard time believing that God sees you and that he cares, let us see you. Let us care. Let us come alongside you. And as we care for you, our goal is to show you that it's not just us who care, but ultimately that it's God who sees you and wants to care for you through us. For all of us, there's one simple thing I want to challenge you to do today, and it's the same thing we've been doing the past couple weeks. Take one minute today, go to newdenver.org slash you are, and download one of the phone backgrounds that says you are seen. Whenever you look at your phone this week, I want you to remember Hagar, a low status, nothing, slave woman, insignificant to those around her, and yet seen by God. And I want you to remember who you are as well. You are seen. There's never a moment where God doesn't see you, where he doesn't care. Receive this truth today. Remember who you are. You are crafted by God. You are made new through Christ, and you are seen. Let's pray. God, thank you for seeing us. In the best times and the worst times, you are there. No matter where we go or what we do, no matter what life throws our way, you see us. You know our names. You care. We are never truly alone because we are with you. Thank you. Help us to receive that truth today. Help us to remember who we are and to remember who you are. You are amazing. You are not distant. You are near and you have compassion on us. You are worthy of our whole hearts and all of our praise. There is no one like you, no other God who sees and who cares. And we do ask that you meet with us. For those of us going through something really difficult right now, show us that you're close. Take care of us in practical ways. Provide the things you know we need. And help us take care of one another well. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.